BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everybody. I'm working on something really, really cool, a very big episode about persuasion and another big episode about people who are working to create new online environments that will combat misinformation, that will help us to deliberate and argue and persuade each other better in places that aren't actually face-to-face. All that coming soon. So until then, I thought I would give you Socks and Crocs, parts one and two, mushed together into a giant mega episode. And that is what this episode will be. See you in two weeks. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 200. issue uh, that has dominated the news this week. Um, Can we get a visual of this dress? No No more visuals. (laughs) Uh, There's a dress that's uh, going all around the internet that some people insist is blue and black, because it is, (sighs) and some people, because their eyes are defective, are insisting (laughs) that it is white and gold. What colors do you see when you look at this dress? Blue and black? Or is it white and gold? The fabric of this dress nearly caused the fabric of the internet to unravel overnight, with people engaged in spirited debate over the dress's color. That darn dress, you know the one I'm talking about, it's been inescapable today, dividing the world between those who see white and gold and those who see blue and black. I don't see this any white and gold. This is happening all across the country. This is no joke. I don't understand it because yeah. it's obviously white and gold. It is uh, blue and black. If it's blue and black, this suit is purple. The tie is purple. <laughs> the Does tie that is purple. Yeah. Okay. There you okay. go. Boom. There we go. <laughs> this is very obviously white and gold. I, it's blue. It's obviously blue. I, I cannot see blue anywhere in that dress. I don't even know how you could see blue. It's, it's all coming at me fast. It's here, a fact me. that you're smarter if you see it in black and blue. Social media is exploding this morning with a debate about one dress. The simple question is, what colors do you see, black and blue or white and gold? For many, the answer has them seeing red. <laughs> one to another dress trending online, and this one is causing a lot of commotion for the mother of the bride. You'll be talking about this one. She wore the dress to her daughter's wedding. Some see white and gold, others see blue and black. I look at this, I see without question white and gold. You you see white and gold oh, in yes. this picture? Oh, of course. That's white and gold. <laughs> what? 
I see black and blue. Where's no black? way. Are you being serious no, right now? No, absolutely. I don't get the white and gold part. I really don't. I look at that knit so clearly, and then I find myself getting irritated with people <laughs> that see white and gold. And uh, you, we had uh, Mindy Kaling and Julianne Moore and Ta uh, was Taylor, it Taylor Swift, Swift uh, all tweeting their opinions about this dress. The last I looked, the BuzzFeed post that put this dress up and asked what color it was uh, had 24 million page views. What scares it, me the hours. most about this, I feel like we've entered some kind of Gary Steingart, George Saunders future, <laughs> where I the tipping point for me where I I was like, it's white and gold, everyone shut up. And then I, I looked at the internet and Taylor Swift had weighed in and that was the point at which I was like, you know what? I, I think Taylor Swift's opinion, I'm gonna disregard my own sensory experience. <laughs> like, I think I'm wrong because Taylor Swift has now weighed in and that was actually, I mean, that's horrifying. I don't even know anymore. So what color does the dress look like to you? Do you remember the dress? I can't hear you, of course, but I do know you said yes to that because working on this episode, I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't remember the dress. And you probably also remember how our differing reactions to the dress kind of broke the internet for a week or so. In this divisive moment, in this post-truth, alternative facts, fake news era, we were and are still all bound together in a shared, strange experience on the same internet that so often divides us. And what bound and binds us is this image, an image that ironically binds us because it divides us so predictably. And it started doing so before terms like post-truth became as popular and as widespread as the dress was in 2015. This is a strange episode. It's not really about the dress so much. It's about how the scientific investigation of the dress led to the scientific investigation of socks and Crocs. And how the scientific investigation of socks and Crocs may be, as one researcher told me, the nuclear bomb of cognitive neuroscience. But that is getting way ahead of ourselves. First, just in case you don't know what the dress is, which seems impossible to me, or you've never heard the details of its origins, allow me to explain. Way back in 2015, before Brexit, before Clinton versus Trump, before weaponized Macedonian internet trolls, one NPR affiliate called the dress, quote, the debate that broke the internet. And the Washington Post referred to it as the drama that divided the planet. We live in strange times and things move fast these days. So yeah, a meme image from 2015 can seem quaint years later. What babes we were, what sweet summer children. Little did we know our reaction to the dress would portend a dozen coming epistemic crises and probably many more to come. But more on that later as well, because I can tell you that even today, when I have shown the dress to groups of people at conferences and such, a guaranteed epistemic panic cascades through the crowd every time. Ask people who see black and blue to raise their hands, and then ask people who see gold and white to raise theirs, and chaos will ensue, guaranteed. 
I think it comes from a mass realization that other people can see things differently at a very fundamental level. And for some, that calls into question everything. And for others, it hardens their views because they really don't like that idea. And so whatever color they do see, they see people who see the other color as others. And that's the power of this image. But for it to do its thing, it requires some sort of group presentation and realization, which is what it found on the internet. So here's a brief history of how the dress entered our lives. In February of 2015, Cecilia Bleasdale was preparing for her daughter Grace's wedding. A week before that wedding, she took a photo of a $77 dress at a London shopping mall. Thinking she might wear that dress to the wedding, she sent the now infamous photo of the dress to her daughter Grace to get her opinion, and upon seeing it, Grace and her soon-to-be husband, Care, could not agree on the color. And so they asked their guests what they saw, and some saw it as black and blue, some saw it as white and gold, nobody could get anyone else to see it differently, and so an existential crisis virus began spreading. And Cecilia was sort of patient zero, the dress was the viral vector, and the wedding was the initial transmission site. But maybe not, because it could have stopped right there if it hadn't been for a Scottish musician named Caitlin McNeil, who posted a picture of the dress on Tumblr. And she captioned it with, Guys, please help me. Is this dress white and gold or blue and black? Me and my friends cannot agree, and we are freaking the fuck out. On Tumblr, people started to argue over what they were seeing, just like people had at the wedding before. And within days, the dress hit BuzzFeed and then social media, and on and on it went. And at times, so many people were sharing it and arguing about it that Twitter couldn't load on their devices. The dress debate crashed Twitter. And the hashtag, the dress, was appearing in 11,000 tweets per minute. BuzzFeed got about 21 million hits out of it, and the article at Wired received 32.8 million. Celebrities chimed in, politicians chimed in, and for a little while, the dress was the centerpiece of a global crisis of the mind. Wherever news items trended, it was far and away the most trending item in the news. Let's get down to what we're really talking about here. What is the truth? And what is the truth in relation to the dress? Because I think the dress is a beautiful, fantastic, understandable, relatable lesson in what is the truth and how do brains make sense of it. Because you see, for Cecilia, back in the dress shop, in person, the dress was blue and black. And no one disagreed with this. Everyone else who saw it in the dress shop saw it as blue and black and not any other color. And I can vouch for this myself because in reporting the story, I went to NYU, sat down with a neuroscientist who has the dress, saw it myself in person, and I can tell you, it's black and blue. But that's almost irrelevant because the photo, the infamous photo in your brain, in other people's brains, in brains in general, is not black and blue. And it's also not white and gold. And that makes this image a rare thing indeed. One cognitive scientist told me that maybe one in 10 billion images out there in the wild is what they would call perfectly ambiguous. And the dress is one such image. 
It is neither white and gold, nor black and blue. Not inside human heads, at least. And there, it's whatever that brain interprets it to be. Meaning that, thanks to some quirks of lighting, technology, and screens, the truth of the dress can only ever be a personal truth. And if you are unfamiliar with the fact that we can have personal truths, then the dress becomes a real philosophical conundrum. How can we both be looking at the same evidence, in this case, the same photo, and yet not see the same thing at the same time? Well, aside from the philosophical implications, scientists who studied color vision began to have their own crises as they tried to answer, why? Why do we not all see the same thing physically in the brain when we look at the dress? And since this is a show about those kinds of scientists doing this kind of science, I traveled to NYU to meet one of them. We thought, until recently, we had figured out color vision. That's NYU cognitive neuroscientist Pascal Wallish. Please forgive the audio because it was recorded in his office and there were people moving around in the hallways and stuff. I cleaned it up a little bit, but it's still going to sound like it sounds. And also, please forgive Pascal because he was getting over a cold. And you have a linear theory, like you have this light and different observers will see it in this way. And we have a linear theory to explain that from the activation in the, in the photoreceptors. So you have three, if you, if you are not color or impaired, you have three different photoreceptors, a long, a medium, and a short wavelength tone. And from the relative activation pattern of those, we can predict what color you will see mm-hmm. consciously. Okay? There's all kinds of implications philosophically for qualia and red light perception and is the red light you see seems like red light I see and all that. All of that was blown wide open in um, February of 2015 when uh, the dress quote unquote surfaced the on, dress. on social media uh, on Tumblr I think actually originally and like uh, BuzzFeed promoted. When Pascal first saw the dress he had the same experience the rest of us had but being a scientist who studies cognition and perception, he wanted to understand it, to figure out why some people saw it as one color and some people saw it as another, and that no amount of arguing could get either side to see things their way. And this led to his new obsession, to his current obsession, which we are exploring from here on out in this episode and the next. And and so, at first, this was brought to me, I changed my students, and they were like, well, what do you think of this? And I initially dismissed it. I was like, well, you know, it's a very weak effect. This is obviously white and gold distress. And um, I kind of made fun of it, I think. Because if you look at a classic textbook from before, a perception textbook before 2015, the color constancy examples are always kind of lame. They're kind of uncompelling. They're like, well, everyone kind of sees these colors the same way, regardless of illumination, sure. Mm-hmm. you know. But it's very subtle effects. And so, you know, I kind of dismissed it. Student ping me on Twitter, I was like, what do you see here? It's like, it's obviously white and gold, it's a very weak effect. Then I went home and showed to my wife, I was like, ha, ah, look at this, it's still a thing online, she was like, it's black and blue. <laughs> I was like, what? So all night, all that night, I was like, up, thinking what could possibly explain this. And so then I wrote a blog post that night, it was like, nothing, we can't, we can't explain this, we don't know why, what's going on, we have no idea, right? Like nothing we know about how color vision works is explaining, can't, can't explain this. Pascal realized that the dress offered a unique opportunity, the kind that scientists live for. It was unknown territory. It was a portal into a new scientific landscape. <laughs> that has to be super exciting. Yeah, I was like, imagine, I don't know, imagine if I told you, we just find a new organ in your body or something like that, that, mm. that we've just missed all this time. 
Pascal could not stop thinking about the potential of studying why brains saw the image differently and thinking it could lead to a new line of research into how minds make sense of other things as well, he shifted his research focus at NYU to tackle the problem while the dress was still going viral. It was super exciting. And so immediately I, you know, Pascal wrote a blog post about why the dress was worthy of scientific investigation, and in that post, he explained that he and other scientists, quote, currently do not know why some people consistently see the dress one way, others consistently see it in another way, and some switch. This was particularly exciting in the domain of neuroscience and psychology, or any of the cognitive sciences, really, because in those worlds, there's something that most of those scientists are familiar with called a bistable image or a bistable perceptual experience. It's something like the, the vase. It's called the Rubens vase, where you see it as two faces looking at one another, or you see it as a vase and it goes back and forth. Or there's also the duck rabbit that looks like a duck sometimes, and sometimes it looks like a rabbit depending on how you look at it and sometimes depending on how it's rotated. These images are bistable within individuals, but the dress was bistable between individuals within the population. Individual people, individual brains, didn't seem to be able to switch, not on their own and not spontaneously, which represented something new. And he went on in his post to say, this was a great moment in internet history because it literally illustrated something that was an important lesson from the cognitive sciences, that the brain constructs reality and what we experience in our heads is a representation of what is outside of them, not a replica of those things. He wrote, one lesson that we can take from all of this is that it is wise to assume a position of epistemic humility. Just because we see something in a certain way doesn't mean that everyone else will see it in the same way. Moreover, it doesn't mean that our perception necessarily corresponds to anything in the real world. So a situation like this calls for the hedging of one's bets, and that means to keep an open mind. Something to remember next time you disagree with someone. End quote. Slate Magazine picked up that post, and he took it as an opportunity to gather data. He asked them to help them record information from visitors at the bottom of the article. They agreed, and so his research began. Now, at the same time, other researchers were taking patches of the dress and had subjects look at them to determine if this was a case of mislabeling, that old philosophical notion of maybe my yellow isn't your yellow, and that research showed that no, this is not mislabeling. Other people were looking at things like, is it a factor of people's screens, or is it something going on in eyeballs, and none of that turned out to be the case. This was a profound difference in perception occurring somewhere in the entire visual system, including the brain. People truly were looking at the same image and getting different colors out of it. But why? Well, this remained to be understood. And this is a good moment, if we're going to understand it, to talk about color constancy, because it's a fundamental part of what we are exploring in these next two episodes. First, a refresher on how color works. Visible light is electromagnetic energy. And the part that we can see, the primary colors we call red, green, and blue, are specific wavelengths within that electromagnetic spectrum. 
This light emanates from some source, the sun, a light bulb, a fire, and then it hits the objects around us. Those objects absorb some of that light and the rest bounces off and then that reflected light goes through a hole in our heads called the pupil and strikes the retina at the back of the eye where it gets translated into the electrochemical buzz of neurons that the brain then uses to construct the subjective experience of seeing things. White light is red, green, and blue combined. But if you take away the blue, leaving behind only red and green, you will see yellow. This is why some objects can appear yellow in some light and white in others, by simply adding or taking away the blue wavelengths at the source of the light. But remember, the brain constructs reality, which is to say, not only are we limited by what the brain interprets from a limited range of senses, but also the brain doesn't always give you the raw information from those senses. And this is where color constancy comes in. Color constancy is the tendency for a color of a familiar object to appear the same under any lighting condition. So, for instance, if you've grown up eating strawberries and spent a lifetime seeing strawberries as red, then when you see the familiar shape of a strawberry, your brain assumes they should be red, even if they happen to be illuminated in light that subtracts the red wavelength. There's a great example of this that you can see in the show notes for this episode over at the website of an image created by researchers of a bowl of strawberries with zero red pixels. If you take Photoshop and you grab a pixel out of it and you look at it really up close and zoomed in, you'll never see a red one. There are no red pixels in the image. Yet, when people look at it, when you look at it, you will see the strawberries as red, even though there is no red going into your eye, hitting your retina, and getting translated into anything by the brain. It is a complete fabrication, which is, in a way, a lie told to you by your visual system in an effort to provide you with what ought to be the truth. The lie, in this case, is more useful to your survival than the truth of the image would be. And so that's what appears in your conscious awareness. Color constancy reveals you don't actually see what is actually happening out there in the real world. That is, color constancy isn't a physical property of the objects you're seeing. The magic is happening in your brain. Under different lighting conditions, a yellow banana always seems to be yellow, even when, in objective reality, it isn't reflecting as much yellow light as the brain is telling you that it is. You are observing the effects of matter on your brain, not the matter itself. Or as Bertrand Russell once put it, the observer, when he seems to himself to be observing a stone, is really, if physics is to be believed, observing the effects of the stone upon himself. Over time, the brain experiences regularities in the environment, and those regularities in the environment create expectations about what's going to happen in a new situation, or just in a situation that seems sort of more or less familiar and like situations you've been in before. In neuroscience, philosophy, and psychology, these experiences that you've had leading up to the present are called your priors. And we use our priors to predict the future. If the train always comes early, we expect it to come early tomorrow. And when a situation is unfamiliar or ambiguous, 
the brain will try to disambiguate that moment using your priors. New city, new train, you first assume that it's going to arrive early, like the trains with which you are familiar, until it doesn't arrive early, and that happens a few times, and so you must adjust your priors. Pascal had a hunch that the photo of the dress was missing a lot of color information, which made it a rare, perfectly ambiguous color image that must be disambiguated by people's visual priors. And he had another hunch that like with bananas and strawberries, the experiences people had had with light and color over their lifetimes would produce priors that affected subjective reality the way color constancy does. Different priors, different constancies, different dresses. Pascal thought what must be happening was, as with color constancy, the brain was lying to people in an effort to give them something more useful than the truth. But unlike with constancy, for this image, it was telling different lies for different people. Two different sets of lies, dividing us into two camps with incompatible personal realities. White and gold, black and blue. And if his hunches were correct, then the only question was, what were the different priors built up by different life experiences that people were using to disambiguate this dress. And this is where Pascal's unique background came into play. Early in his career, he had been a sleep researcher, and because of that, he had a unique hypothesis. So here, edited for the sake of time, is him on stage with me last year explaining to an audience what he discovered once he committed his lab's efforts to solving the mystery of the dress. I remember a student brings to my attention, they tweeted at me, they were like, hey, check out this, this, this dress. And I was like, well, it's obviously white and gold. We have seen this before, it's color constancy, these are very subtle effects. I went home and, my, and I said, hey, look at well, a student tweeted at me, showed my wife, and she's like, what are you talking about? It's black and blue. And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, we're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> and um, immediately uh, decided to study that. Like, why is it? Uh, so anyway, so, so those are two reasons. It really caught people's... It was like if you threw a life grenade into the color vision community who had been a little bit staid before that. It really excited everyone's imagination. But anyway, yeah. so, so what, what's going on is this. Um, let me walk you through this. So basically, in a nutshell, the same thing is going on as in the strawberries. It's basically color constancy mechanisms. What you're seeing is the end result of about a 30-step visual process in Cascade. And the bottom line is that two different people might do this processing differently. Here's what happened. They took an actually black and blue dress and photographed it in a shop in England on a rainy, gray winter day in February 2016 to prepare for a Scottish wedding on a Galaxy Samsung cell phone, and they super overexposed it. <laughs> Doing that, you have this washed out effect, so you are unclear what the uh, illumination is. I actually don't have a laser pointer, but if you look at the top, this implies sunlight. The bottom, and this is not a great rendering, no offense, the bottom um, <laughs> implies artificial light, incandescent long wavelength light. <laughs> so in other words, you do not know what the illumination was. So uh, it's ambiguous. It could it's be, ambiguous, it could be I mean, in sunlight I mean, or it could be an artificial could light. Could be sunlight, could be artificial light. And so he, in other words, people, and this is like an old, old idea, people assume what they've seen more of. Now, can you think of a condition where someone might be exposed to more sunlight than other people? Day people might Some people get up in the morning and some people get up, you know, late, uh, like noon. Looking at large numbers of people, and I'll tell you in a moment why that matters, everything else being equal, people who uh, see more sunlight 
some morning purse people, uh -huh. larks, are more likely to see their dresses white and gold. Let me tell you why. Larks. Larks. Morning people are larks. What's the color of the sky? Bluish. Kindergarten color science. What happens if you subtract <laughs> blue from gray? Yellow. Yellow. Let's, just, let's say you were like me, like a night owl. You get up at like, I don't know, noon. Stay yeah. up until 4 a.m. Have an incandescent light. So you're going to assume yellow light. What happens if you subtract yellow light from gray? Blue. 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 So you're telling me that the morning, people who, who are morning people, what do you call the night people, by the way? Night owls? Night owls. Larks, yeah. Larks and night owls, unbeknownst to them, Yes. in certain ambiguous situations, yes. we'll see two different realities. Correct. And okay. let, me, let me tell you why, that, why, why it matters to have large numbers, though. According to my calculations, you need 5,000 people to show the effect reliably. But we, did, we had 13,000 people, so we were able to show it reliably. Mm. It's a dose-dependent fashion. The more, the more of a morning person you are, the more likely you are to see it as, uh, as, mm. white, uh, as uh, white and gold. And the more uh, of an evening person you are, the more you see it as uh, black and blue. To make this long story short, we can explain on large groups who sees what. So uh, what I love from this is that it's our experience. Oh, yes, please, a round of applause, please. <laughs> and, and what matters, by the way, what matters my here is... So there you have it. That's the answer. And that work, by the way, took about two years to complete and involved more than 10,000 participants. And if you need a summary of everything we talked about here, a summary of what we're trying to get at before we introduce the next episode, is this. Pascal's research showed that since the image of the dress was ambiguously lit, the more time you spent exposed to artificial light before you saw that dress, the more likely you would see the dress as black and blue because your brain simulated the image in your mind as if it was lit artificially. The more time you had spent exposed to natural light, the more likely you saw the dress as white and gold because your brain simulated the image in your mind as if it was lit by sunlight. And there's something that Pascal really wanted people to understand, which was that this was a case where people had a lot of control over their life experiences leading up into that moment, which meant the choices people had made before they saw the dress determined how they saw the dress, because those choices had shaped their brains in such a way that the brain edited reality into something more useful than that ambiguous image, but it did so differently than other people's brains who disambiguated it differently. And that's because... All reality is simulated, and you live in a virtual landscape of perpetual imagination that is a self-generated illusion. Of course, you don't know that you're always disambiguating. You think you're experiencing the world as it truly is. And when a lot of people are sure that their version of reality is the really real version, at the same time a lot of other people are sure that no, in fact, their version is, you get things like the dress. But also, the Inquisition and the Hundred Years' War and $100,000 bananas taped to walls, and presidential impeachment hearings that no one can agree upon, and every other subjective opinion that floats out there, whether it be about a movie, or a musician, a book, or a television show, or, as it is currently, politics. But Pascal realized he could not stop here. Why? Because that's not how science progresses. And psychology and neuroscience can often be criticized for this. This was just one image one very unique image. So what if this research, like a lot of psychological and neuroscientific research, was describing something that can only happen in a very specific and possibly rare condition? And that's what set him down his next research path.
There's a big difference between explaining something that happened and predicting something that will happen. It's a huge, huge this, difference. This is the, the point of experiment. And I put that in the paper, in the address paper. like, well, for to really claim to understand this, we have to be able to create it. Right now we can't create it, so maybe we don't understand this what we thought. Science, right, has several levels. The basic level is description. You describe what happened. You right. describe what is. That's the lowest level. Like uh, um, taxonomies like that. Uh, let's say um, you just classify the grasses by how many hairs are on them or something like that. Like Linnaeus, you know, mm-hmm. taxonomy. Botany. I mean, we can make a, a billion taxonomies. This right. is whatever works. The second level is explanation. Mm-hmm. Why do different grasses have different properties? Why do different bugs have different spots? That's where the theory of evolution came in. It explains why we see these different things you know, in an underlying framework. But then there's prediction from the, from the explanation. Like, if our, model, if our model is true, we should be able to predict what happens. And then finally, the holy grail is what's called manipulation, which I don't like to actually call it anymore because of the replication crisis, but like control. Like, if, if you really understand, you should be able to, to, to create the effect. So, for instance... Uh, uh, a nuclear bomb. Like, if you can build a nuclear bomb or nuclear reactor, you probably understand the principles of nuclear physics fairly well. Because that doesn't happen randomly. <laughs> if you go to the moon, you probably understand gravity fairly well. Which if you saw the Apollo 11 like, documentary, that's amazing. There was like, I don't know, 20 windows where they had like a 10 second window to do whatever they had to do and they did it. There was no surprises. Mm-hmm. At every stage, they did the next thing. They launch the next stage. So, so prediction is so tight that you can. We're so tight that we could go to the moon. Mm-hmm. So the crocs and socks is that it's the cognitive equivalent of that. We built a nuclear bomb cognitively, <laughs> and you, you laugh, but no, no, it's so. I'm laughing because you said socks and crocs are kind of like building a, a cognitive cognitive nuclear bomb. <laughs> and the, the the reason I find it remarkable, and that sounds very arrogant, but you might be surprised how little that is done in the cognitive sciences. It's often just description, just explanation, maybe prediction, but that last step of actually creating something new is usually missing. Yes, you heard Pascal correctly. He built something new. He built a cognitive nuclear bomb out of socks, and Crocs. Crocs, yeah. Those resin foam clogs, those much maligned shoe things. And why would he choose such an object to plunder the depths of human consciousness? It's pretty simple, actually. When you imagine Crocs in your mind's eye, what color are they? He chose Crocs because they don't have any particular default color. And in the next episode you'll see how a late-night madcap trip to Walgreens to buy Crocs and tube socks combined with marijuana grow lights inside Pascal's attic allowed Pascal and his research assistant to recreate the conditions of the dress in the lab, and how what they learned from that research led to his new theory, which he calls SurfPad, which stands for Whenever you combine substantial uncertainty with ramified or forked priors or assumptions, you will get disagreement. And it helps explain how people debate at the level 
of their subjective experiences, unaware of the influence of their priors on their processing and how this unawareness is actually behind the veil of their deep processing, motivations, goals, and so on, is crucial to understanding why people resist, how to empathize with it, how to better overcome that resistance if that's something you truly want to do, and how to see your own beliefs, attitudes, and values as something under the same kind of influence as theirs. In this case, the influence of socks and crocs. The nuclear bomb of cognitive neuroscience. All that after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that 
just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. This is part two about how a divisive photograph of a perceptually ambiguous dress led two researchers to build the nuclear bomb of cognitive science out of socks and Crocs. Mm. I love that sentence. I love it. To understand any of what I'm about to tell you, you need to be refreshed on the story and the science that we've covered so far. So let's quickly go back through all of that stuff, but also, as we do that, let's cover some new stuff. Okay, here we go. In 2015, a photograph of a dress hit the internet, and it went mega, 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 mega viral because some people saw it as one color, others saw it as another color, and no amount of arguing between these groups could get people who saw it differently to get the other people to see it their way. When neuroscientist Pascal Wallach, an expert on color vision and sleep and differences in perception, first saw this dress, he had the same experience as everyone else. He saw it as gold and white, but his wife saw it as black and blue, and this made him go, uh, this can't be, because despite his expertise, he had no idea why this would be true. And so he, along with many other researchers around the world, began to investigate it, and in his field, as he put it, it was like a biologist discovering a new organ in the human body that had somehow eluded science up until now. 
He became obsessed, and he shifted his research focus at NYU to tackle the problem while the dress was still going around the internet, causing people to argue and more or less freak out. After two years and thousands of subjects, he succeeded in figuring out why. Or, to put it more scientifically, he and his team succeeded in forming a robust hypothesis that was supported by the evidence they had collected so far. That hypothesis was this. If you've been a morning person most of your life, the dress is more likely to appear white and gold to you in your mind's eye, in your brain, in your subjective experience, in the virtual reality created by the neurons that are all enmeshed, entangled, and networked inside your skull. If you've been an evening person most of your life, the dress is more likely to appear blue and black for the same reasons. And that's all because... The brain constructs reality. What you see and feel and taste and hear is an interpretation, and the way it appears in consciousness is a representation of that interpretation. The brain is trapped in the black box of the skull, and the information coming in from the senses is, to the brain, nothing but frequencies of cellular activity, neuronal thresholds of activation, biochemical signals, code, you, our code, everything you taste, feel, hear, and do, code, decoded into a virtual reality. Now that's enough for anyone to stop what they're doing, go out and stare into the distance for a while and reassess everything about everything you know. But there's another level to this that complicates it even further, that makes it even weirder. There are aspects of subjective reality, like the third dimension, that the brain doesn't receive from the senses at all. Instead, it uses the limited information it does receive to extrapolate and assume and guess its way to making a maybe, maybe not good enough version of three-dimensional reality that exists only inside of minds. You, you don't have... Uh distance information available, okay? Distance. Your your brain does not have distance information available at all. That's NYU neuroscientist, cognitive scientist, and psychologist, Pascal Walsh. Uh, why not? Because, uh, uh, David, how many dimensions does your retina have? Uh, for the sake of this, two. Wonderful. The retina is, for the sake of this, a two-dimensional sheet at the back of your eye, and the uh, world is projected onto it. Okay, great. Now, as far as we know, how many dimensions does reality have? As far it, as far as we experience it, three, kind of four, but let's say visually three. Three plus. Let's say stick with three. Oh, no, David. Entire dimension information is lost up front. It never enters your brain. Oh, no. Three to two, right? Let me ask you this. David, do you, do you think this distance is kind of important to, like, survive in the environment? Yeah, it's vital. It's, it's incredibly vital. I have kind of bad news for you, David. Your brain doesn't have no information about this at all distance. You, there's substantial uncertainty. So what I mean by that is, so for instance, minor uncertainty would be like, oh, I don't know if this shirt is a blue or turquoise or cyan or bloy or whatever, some, some, some shade of blue, right? Mm -hmm. Substantial mm -hmm. uncertainty is like, oh my God, I have no idea how far away something is. Yes? Mm -hmm. Right. Let, let me tell you how it's resolved in, in, in real life. In real life, over a lifetime, you learn 
what is associated with distance. So, for instance, you learn that things that are farther away look bluer because of, uh, you know, Rayleigh scattering of light in the atmosphere. You realize that things that are far away are higher up. You realize that things that are far away move less uh, as you move. It's called parallax and things like that. And so over a lifetime, you build up a database of correlations that allows you to disambiguate this, this, uh, this substantial uncertainty. Substantial uncertainty. We're going to return to this quite a bit for the rest of the episode, but we're not going to dig into it quite yet, except to say you are not so smart as an idea, as a thing. It's sort of mission statement is you are unaware of how unaware you are. And because of that, you are the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. I say those two things all the time. That is what this whole show, this whole project is about. When Pascal and his colleague, Michael Karlovich, who you will meet in a moment, when they talk about this, they talk about it in terms of substantial uncertainty. But it's understood that when you are substantially uncertain, sometimes you don't know it. And sometimes not only do you not know it, your brain will resolve that uncertainty and not tell you about it. And so the result is that you can feel quite certain that you understand something or you experience something and that it's real and true and proper, even though it's just a guess. You aren't privy to the fact that your brain is guessing. And that's how distance works in art, in video games, in movies. As Pascal just said, we don't receive distance information via our senses. We assume it based on associations that we have correlated with distance in the past. A few episodes back, we had an entire episode about this with cognitive scientist Maura Dillon, who also is at NYU. And she said, all works of art are optical illusions, representing not what's out there, but what happens inside your brain when you interact with what's out there. Real world to artist's retina, artist's retina to representation, representation to canvas, canvas to audience retina, audience retina to audience representation. 3D to 2D to 3D to 2D to 3D. Images, whether they're paintings or photographs or works of art of any kind from video games to comic books, they exhibit some of the features the brain associates with the reality that it creates when it's trying to give you information about distance, some of the regularities with which the brain is familiar. The brain can interpret the lines on the paper, the paint on the canvas, the pixels on the screen, as if those are clues about distance information. And so it takes that and generates the illusion of distance where there is none. With most art and video games and movies, our broadly similar brains decode those lines in paint and pixels into subjective realities that are broadly similar. When you see Elsa from Frozen on your iPad, you don't interpret those pixels as a pile of ketchup packets singing in unison. You interpret them as one thing, the same thing as everyone else. But there are other images, images called bistable perceptions, that the brain decodes into one of two possible subjective experiences. And since it can't decide which one is the right one, the most useful one, the most accurate one, it switches back and forth, seemingly at random, like with the Rubens vase, which can look like a vase, or like two people facing one another, or the Necker cube, which we mentioned earlier, 
which sometimes looks inside out and sometimes looks outside in. And, my favorite, the duck rabbit, which looks like a duck and looks like a rabbit. But the duck rabbit is neither a duck nor a rabbit. It's just lines on a piece of paper, which is to say it's electromagnetic which is to say it's electromagnetic energy bouncing off the paper, entering the eye through the pupil, striking the retina where it gets translated into the buzz of neurons. And normally, the brain would decode that buzz into one thing. But in the case of these bistable images, the buzz is ambiguous. Not wildly so, like an abstract painting, which would be sort of broadly stable, like maybe people see one of 16 or 17 common things. No, these images are bistable. It looks like a duck, or it looks like a rabbit, but not both at the same time. The brain is unable to settle on one or the other as it tries to turn that ambiguous buzz into a virtual object for you to perceive inside of your personal, subjective reality. So, that brings us back to the dress. As Scientific American put it, the dress turned out to be a new category of visual illusion. Unlike a rabbit that can look like a duck, if you saw one of the two possible ways of interpreting the dress and not the other, there was no way that someone who did see it differently could help you see it in the other way. Pascal and his team had a hunch that this had to do with what happens when the brain faces substantial uncertainty. When the brain must disambiguate an ambiguous image It does so using its priors. Priors are what neuroscientists and philosophers call the years of experience and regularity leading up to the present. All the ways that a ball has bounced. All the ways a pancake has tasted. All the ways the dogs in your life have barked or bitten or hugged you when you were sad. These all shape the brain. Literally shape it. They form and prune our neural networks so that in situations that are uncertain, unfamiliar or ambiguous, we depend on these priors to help us disambiguate the new information coming into the brain via our senses. But the brain goes further than this. In situations of what Pascal and Michael call substantial uncertainty, the brain will use its priors to create illusions of what ought to be there. In the last episode, we used this example, which you can see at the website, of a bowl of strawberries created by psychologist Akiyoshi Kiriyoka. In that image, there are no red pixels, but when you see it, you will see the strawberries as red. This is called color constancy, and it happens because you've grown up eating strawberries and spent a lifetime seeing strawberries as red. So your strawberry priors are activated in that moment of uncertainty when you see the familiar shape of a strawberry without enough color information. Your brain assumes they should be red, even if the wavelength of light that the brain interprets as red is not present. The red is a complete fabrication by your brain, which is, in a way, a lie told to you by your visual system in an effort to provide you with what ought to be the truth. That lie, like with distance, is more useful to your survival than the truth of the image would be. And so that's what appears in your conscious awareness. I was recently talking to an AI guy, artificial intelligence, and they were like, we can't figure out why our models don't work. We, we, we fed our artificial vision system with, with a billion images, two billion images, five billion images, right? But the performance is very poor. And so here's what's 
what what shocked me talking to this guy. So he's like, we can't figure this out. I was like, bro, the information is not in the image to, to disability. It's coming from you. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's not enough information in the images to dis- distinguish them. Most of the information that, that allows you to do that comes from yourself. So unless you model that, the AI is not going to get there. Most of the information that allows you to see things does not come from the environment. It comes from yourself, which is crazy. Of course, the yourself is often like a condensed version of everything you've seen up to, up to this point. In other words, you're prior. After two years and a few thousand subjects, this is what Pascal found. The photo of the dress is missing a lot of color information, which makes it a rare, perfectly ambiguous color image. In fact, he said on the internet, maybe one in 10 billion images are like this. And we found a few others because there's so many images floating around on the internet, but not many. There's the shoe, there's the dresser, but the dress really still stands out as the one that most people remember. Because the exact wavelengths of light bouncing off the dress are difficult for people's brains to determine, each individual brain falls back on its visual priors to disambiguate the image. It's neither blue and black, nor is it white and gold. It's whatever the brain disambiguates it to be. And they found in the research that the more time subjects had spent exposed to artificial light, the more likely they interpreted the dress as black and blue because there's more blue wavelengths in that kind of light. The brains of night owls simulate the image as if it were lit artificially. The more time subjects have spent exposed to natural light, it seems more likely that they will see that dress as white and gold because the brains of early birds simulate the image in their minds as if lit by their wavelengths that are more common in sunlight. Pascal's lab came up with a term for all of this, for everything that we've talked about so far. They call it SURFPAD, which stands for Substantial Uncertainty Combined with Ramified or Forked Priors or Assumptions Yields Disagreement. And ramified, by the way, means branching. So when a situation or perception or solution is uncertain, when people don't know the right, true, proper, or best conclusion to draw, when it's ambiguous, they fall back on their priors, and different priors can lead to very different disambiguations. But no one is privy to any of this, not even the uncertainty. We don't know that we're uncertain as much as we don't know that we're disambiguating. You're only consciously aware of the results of these processes, not the processes themselves. So the resulting disagreement over reality itself makes the people who disagree with you not just seem wrong, but crazy. The dress showed that we can have an opinion about something that doesn't feel like an opinion. It feels like the raw, unfiltered, unassailable truth. Pascal Wallach and his colleague Michael Karlovich felt very good about SurfPad and its implications. They thought maybe what they had discovered concerning the dress could shed light on other kinds of polarized disagreements surrounding politics and current events. Disagreement, they realized, was the real focus of their research. And the fact that it was disagreement over something so fundamental as color meant that they could and should create an experiment that harkened back to the early days of all scientific experimentation, back when understanding color was the crack that let in the light to everything happening in the brain. But they also knew this was one very unique image, and the research into the dress might just be describing something that happened in very specific and possibly rare conditions. To truly test their hypothesis, they would have to go up a level of scientific understanding, which, as Pascal put it, meant 
they had to build the cognitive equivalent of a nuclear bomb. To really claim to be understand it, we have to be able to do this. Briefly, there's three or four, depends how you count, level of science. The first level is description. Say, I describe what's out there. Just, I make a catalog. Aristotle, Aristotle was speaking on that. Like, I make a big catalog of all the beetles and all the bugs in the world, okay? Anatomy is like that. Linnaeus. Like, I just, I'm not judging. I'm just making a big taxonomy of all the animals that live. That description, all right? But a second level to that is explanation. It's like, oh, I want to explain why the bugs are related to each other the way they are, or why, why these bugs look similar, why these bugs look different, right? So explanation is a second level. But explanation is post hoc. It's like, oh, I explain things that have already happened. So what most people, most scientists then uh, require for, like, is a, is a third level, which is prediction. I predict that if we do X, Y will happen. And, and importantly, if, uh, you know, not Y happens, then not X was the case. So, so there's the two, the two, the two valid uh, modes, like modus poens, modus tollens. Like, if I understand it correctly, like if I do X, Y should happen. If Y did not happen, X should not have happened, right? Then I can predict. That's the third level. But, and this has been recognized for a long time now, is the full, full understanding is if you can just create the, create the effect. That's what, that's what the full, the highest level is. So for instance, um, if we can go to the moon, we probably understand gravity. If we can create a nuclear reactor, we probably understand you know, nuclear physics pretty well. In our first conversation about this, when Pascal told me about the ladder of scientific understanding, description to explanation to prediction to creation, he told me the nuclear bomb was a really good example of creation. Now he likes to use the example of the nuclear reactor, but the idea is the same. Neither one of those creations existed until we created them. And to create something like a nuclear bomb or reactor, we had to truly understand the science behind its principles. That's not to say there isn't still plenty more to learn, but what it does say is that physics in that regard has gone way past the description, explanation, and prediction levels, which is not something you can always say about the cognitive sciences, especially psychology. And Pascal is very passionate about that idea. He wants psychology to go back to the beginning and design experiments more like the way physics designs experiments. And so, with the dress, that's exactly what he wanted to do. Usually, most science, particularly in social sciences, stops at description, explanation, and, and prediction. But this last step to intervention, to like creating the effect like basically creating a nuclear reactor out of our understanding of the principles is not taken. As a matter of fact, like I said, I'm, I'm challenging you to tell me one case where that, where that was done, where, where we said, okay, we think we understand this phenomenon well enough that we can recreate it from scratch. There's hundreds of theories out there why the Roman Empire fell, right? Can we test any of them? No, because there's only one Roman Empire and we can recreate it to see what would make it fall. So there's no way to, to tell. So that's, that's, that's an analogy. In this case, we, we could and we did. So we're here in my home office, right? And um, I need to be careful, but basically, like the, you see, you see, do you see this? That's NYU neuroscientist Pascal Wallach. And he's showing me in a sort of crawl space in the corner of his home office, the place where he and his colleague, Michael Karlovich, 
built the nuclear bomb of cognitive science out of socks and Crocs. This is still set up in a, in a way. There's the lamps are back there, the Crocs are here. There's, there, there's, this, is, this is like partially dismantled now. So it's, it's like, but there's this cross space, like, but we had, this all, we, had, we had this all blacked out. Does that make sense? What I'm seeing is a blacked out space filled with Crocs of all kinds and, and tube socks and wires. It's thrilling because this is what science looks like, what real science looks like. It's messy and weird. So most of this is now gone, but there was this strip. Do you see this strip here of LEDs? So that's how we control the light. You see that? Now, and this 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 is a sheet of our conditions that we ran because we we didn't know which one's going to run uh, work. You know what I'm saying? So so this is the space. When you feel like you're onto something in science, truly onto something, something big, like Wallace and Michael did, this hypothesis they had inside the domain of psychophysics that. The way that people see things differently, literally see things differently, explains why they see things differently metaphorically. When you feel like you can actually create that experiment, when you have that eureka moment that says, oh, wait, I think I know how we can do this, it can lead to a rush, a mad dash, and in this case, a real mad dash to stores all over the New York area to find the very special equipment that they needed to conduct a very special and weird experiment. I stood in front of this Crocs display for about an hour, just being like, what colors? <laughs> and, you know, there's, you know, until you go to a Crocs store, you don't realize how many Crocs there are. That's neuroscientist Michael Karlovich, and he is sending pictures of Crocs to another neuroscientist, Pascal Wallace, back at the lab because they're on the verge of a breakthrough in the field of psychophysics. I was just taking pictures and sending them to Pascal, and we were just, uh, and we were going nuts there because when I would take a picture of the Croc in the store, it wouldn't match the color of the Croc on the screens, and it was just like, so that was just one issue in itself. Like, what is the manufacturer's color? Um, so we started to realize that this is going to be interesting. They had been searching for months for an object that could stand in for the dress in an attempt to create an experiment that could replicate what people experienced back in 2015 when the infamous dress hit the internet. What they needed was an object that was perceptually ambiguous, which meant when viewed under unusual lighting conditions, people would ignore that object and look to something else in the image to clue them in as to what the actual lighting conditions were. Based on their priors, that clue would then tell them, okay, then the ambiguous object must be lit in this way, and they would see it in that way. If their hypothesis was correct, then that should cause some people to see it as one color and others to see it as another. And for that, they either needed something that had no default color associated with it already, or a large portion of the public associated it with one color and others associated it with another. Yeah, so that's so that's the key. Let me get this clear on camera, on mic for you. We want a situation where for part of the pro, part, part of the object, people have no prior. And part of the object, some people have a strong prior. That's it. That that's the design principle. And I think this would work with almost anything. I've tried lots of different things that could potentially 
be ambiguously perceived. Before we got to that, I tried things like flamingos because flamingos are usually pink, but they can be white. Um, and I tried uh, eggs because of the story green eggs and ham. I figured I could maybe there's enough of a prior from like if I can make eggs greenish, I make some people see them as green and some people as yellow. Um, and then I I just tried around with different color combinations, lots of on objects and in Photoshop for hours, playing around with just the nature of color and light um, to, to no avail. Um, and then, and then I, that's when I reached out to Pascal telling him that I was trying to do it. And he said, like, fat chance. Um, and I just kind of kept at it and we kept talking about it and got to the Crocs. So why Crocs? Well, there are two answers to this, but the first one lies in the question itself. When I ask you, what color are Crocs? Those foam resin clogs popular with nurses and gardeners and retirees. What color comes to your mind? What do you see in your mind's eye? The first reason they chose Crocs is because there are 28 different colors of Crocs. They don't have any particular color. Think of it like this. If you saw a black and white photo of a strawberry you'd probably assume it was red. But if you saw a black and white photo of a croc, well, you wouldn't know what to assume. Reason number two. Michael had spent weeks trying to find an object that had no particular color. And he had tried all sorts of things, from green eggs to fake flamingos. Until one day, this old memory came flying back to the center of his attention. He remembered being in school studying color science, and he was helping a friend grow some plants in a grow house lit only by green-tinted grow lights. Now, green plants are green because they absorb all the wavelengths of visible light except the wavelengths that brains interpret as green. So if you use green light the plants react as if they are in darkness. You can think of it as plants can't see green, but you can. So you can work with plants during an artificial nighttime without disturbing their circadian rhythms if you use green lights. Michael was hanging out with someone doing just that when he noticed something unusual. Michael's friend was wearing Crocs, and those Crocs were gray inside the grow house. But then they went outside, they went into the sunlight, and he saw, oh no, wait, these Crocs are pink. Yeah, they're just these, they're really, they're like a just worn, worn out, beat up pink Croc. Under the green lights, they were gray. Under sunlight, they were pink. He understood it. He was studying color science. It made sense. Then they went back into the grow house and they remained pink. They remained pink as if they were still in sunlight. And Michael knew that this was impossible. We have reached the point in our story where we have to go back over how color works scientifically if we're going to understand anything else. So let's just get right into it. Light is an oscillating electromagnetic energy field. The higher frequency oscillations have short wavelengths. The lower frequency oscillations have long wavelengths. 
and this energy, it emanates from some source, like a candle or the moon or the sun, and then it hits the objects around us. Those objects absorb some, and the rest bounces off, and then some of that reflected light bouncing off enters our pupils, strikes the retina, and is translated into electrochemical signals that amount to the buzzing of neurons. The brain then decodes that buzzing to construct the subjective experience of color. Along this electromagnetic spectrum, radio waves are very, very long, and X-rays are really, really short. But we can't see those because we evolved to detect the strongest wavelengths produced by the sun, or what we would call visible light. Shorter wavelengths of visible light are experienced in the brain as the color blue, longer wavelengths as the color red, and green in the middle. And that's right, in the brain. Color only exists inside of brains. Out there, it's wavelengths. The crests and valleys are the most commonly encountered wavelengths of the oscillating electromagnetic field emanating from our closest star, to be exact. In here, in virtual reality, where you're hearing these words, it's red, green, and blue. A white object is white because it reflects all the wavelengths and absorbs none, whereas a black object does the inverse of that and absorbs all the wavelengths and reflects none. A red object, however, absorbs all the wavelengths except the long ones. And when those long wavelengths bounce off that object and then hit your retina, your brain perceives that as red. Which means, if you illuminate a red object in only green light, it will absorb almost all of that light and reflect almost none back, which means it will appear dark in your brain, almost black, what we call gray. So green and pink are on the opposite end of the color wheel. This is the, the simplest way if I can say it. And the green light cancels out the, the pink, uh, rendering it gray. Um, so you can do this uh, with you know other colors. Like if you put the if you put red, if you put, took straight red and put it under the green light, it would almost look black. Um, but the pink it cancels out into a grayish. Green light on pink Crocs, because pink is kind of a lighter shade of red, will make them look grayish. And that is exactly what was happening to those pink Crocs in that grow room under those green lights. They were absorbing almost all of that green and reflecting almost none of it back. And Michael's brain perceived them as gray. But under sunlight, which contains red light, his brain saw them as pink, their true color. But then, when he went back under the grow lights, his brain knew the truth. It had already seen them as they really were. And so they didn't go back to gray. Even though nothing had actually changed in the physical world, objective reality had not been altered. But something inside Michael's brain had. Because his brain knew that the Crocs were supposed to be pink. Because of that, he saw them as pink. Even though those wavelengths of light were not entering his eyes. Which means... Michael's brain was lying to him and telling him the truth at the same time. Under normal lighting conditions, these crocs would be pink, but these were not normal lighting conditions. In objective reality, the wavelengths of light that his brain would have interpreted as pink just weren't there. They were not present. And so the brain delivered to Michael's consciousness a color perception that was a complete fiction because it decided, all on its own, without any input from him, that they weren't pink, but they ought to be. And so, for him, they were. 
Somewhere in the middle of trying to both come up with an experimental design and come up with an object that would work in that design, the shoe came along. The shoe. The shoe is just like the dress in that it works the same way as the dress using all the principles we've talked about so far. And in the case of the shoes, some people saw it as mint green and gray, and some people saw it as pink and white, exactly as Michael had seen that croc back in the day. And when he told Pascal about that story about the croc, Eureka. And the impetus was the shoe, the sneaker resurfaced. In like May 2019, the, the sneaker had gone retroviral. There was, a, there was a sneaker that was uh, actually pink, but it looked to some people gray and green. And, and, then, and, then, and then Fox News called me. They were like, we want you to explain this on the air. And then I was pressed to commit to, commit to a explanation. And I did on the air. I was like, I think this is because of what I just told you. Basically, this is a surf pad, although it didn't have the name back then yet. And there was another fortuitous development. As you know, my collaborator, Michael Kolovich, had been had told me that he had been working on, on making color ambiguous displays for months, but he couldn't do it. Yeah, and then I told I told him about that story, and he goes, "Huh? Go buy some Crocs and socks." He got he got the Crocs, and we got the light bulbs together. And then we went and we bought it, and we yes. put the lab together, right. um, a makeshift lighting lab in my in my attic. Yeah, in the bat in the uh, walk-in closet of his of his attic. And he was wearing the Crocs and socks. I was taking the pictures. Yeah, that was it. And then. Um, well, and then we went through our hundreds of images, yeah. and uh, we looked for like one that was well balanced. Yeah. Like, Do you were you walking through Walgreens with socks, Crocs, and grow lights? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In a nutshell, yes. Yeah. And people looked at us like we're insane. Yeah. Well, you kind of you may be. Yeah. Uh, you're definitely maniacs. Uh, well, thanks. <laughs> So here's the experiment. They thought, what if we took these pink crocs and we lit them with only green light? That would turn them gray in people's brains. That's what they would look like, gray crocs instead of pink crocs. They thought, if we did that and then we took a photo of these newly ambiguous gray crocs next to some sort of illumination cue, something that would entice the brain to disambiguate them from gray into another color, just like people had done with a dress, just like people had done with a shoe, then they would be replicating this one in 10 billion image that has popped up twice so far in our most recent memories. But to do this, they would need something that was the opposite of ambiguous, something whose color was unambiguous, something discrete and concrete, something to pair with the Crocs that most people, if they were to imagine that something, would mostly imagine it as having one particular color. And here, the answer seemed obvious. Socks. Any trip to any local mall, Walmart, or Home Depot, and you will see socks paired with Crocs. And most people who pair socks with Crocs wear white socks, no matter what Crocs they pair those white socks with. So this was their grand hypothesis. Under green light, white socks will appear green. So when some brains see these green socks with gray Crocs, those brains will not believe those socks are green because socks are supposed to be white. So those brains will then, rightly so, assume that those socks are lit by green light, which means that the Crocs, although they appear gray, must actually be pink. 
If Michael and Pascal were correct, then all of this expertise in color theory would exist as a sort of unconscious knowledge in most people's minds, stored in their priors, and all this work would be done in the brain without anyone knowing what was happening to them. They would just experience in consciousness the end result of all of that processing. They would see pink crocs, even though in the image, not a single pixel of those crocs would actually be pink. If their hunches were correct, that also meant that some people wouldn't do any of this. They would take the photo as is. They would see the green socks, and they would assume the socks were green. Any brain that assumed that the socks were truly green would assume they were being lit by white light, which meant that the crocs were being lit by white light, which meant that the crocs were truly gray. If you take what starts hitting your retina at face value, you will see gray crocs with green socks. However, some people will say, oh no, I know these I know these socks are white. I have these socks. I wear these socks. They're white. So now you have a hint that the light must have been green, and those can then subtract it all around because in, in our evolution environment, we have only one light source. This is not Tatooine, right? So you, you, you assume that this one light is a global light source. And if you subtract green from the entire image, including the gray, uh, then you get a pink croc. By the way, just to be sure, they also got some green crocs and lit those under pink lights. But the results were the same. So, what were those results? What were the results of this experiment that we've been talking about for so long? Well, you can go to the website and see for yourself. Because they did it. They really did. There's an image there of a croc that some of you will see as gray and some of you will see as pink. And if you see it as gray, you can't see it as pink. And if you see it as pink, you can't see it as gray. And get this, there's a correlation here like before with the dress. It seems as though older people are more likely to see those crocs as green and younger people are more likely to see them as gray. Why? Well, it's a weak correlation, but it's there. And the idea is probably because older people are more likely to see socks as white. They've had more life experiences with white socks and fewer life experiences with socks of any other color. So there it is. Your experiences with socks over the course of your lifetime determine what you see when you take a look at an ambiguous pair of Crocs. With their understanding of the science behind the dress, Pascal and Michael were able to create an image that does exactly the same thing to large groups of people as the dress did. It creates a condition of substantial uncertainty that people resolve with their forked priors, and that then yields a bistable disagreement. In other words, they built the nuclear bomb of cognitive science, an ambiguous image so rare that before this, in the wild, it only appeared once per 10 billion photos. But now, it can be created at will. It felt so good uh, 
you know, when you have an idea and then it's working, you know, what, what else are you going to do except go after it? And that, in and of itself, would be a triumph as far as scientific methodology and experimental design are concerned. But for Pascal and Michael, this was the first step toward understanding at the fundamental level something much, much bigger, something that affects all of us. Even right now, during the coronavirus pandemic, when I'm recording this, in moments of uncertainty, people fall back on what they know. The regularities of experience and the lessons from authorities they trust and the rumors from those to whom they feel kindred. And throughout human history, this has served us well. As long as we shared those priors, even if those priors were wrong. Because if they were wrong, we could, as a group, update them with better or more useful or less harmful ones through face-to-face deliberation and argumentation and sharing of innovations, both technological and cultural. In the past, geography is what kept people apart. So major disagreements about reality in the form of religion and taboo and human rights and so on were usually the result of physical distance, natural boundaries generating cultural islands. But today, thanks to the internet and algorithms and self-selection and partisan media outlets, neighbors can live cordoned off on separate virtual landscapes, epistemic islands where they receive a continuous stream of virtual social feedback, regular but different experiences, messages, subjective interpretations, affirmations, confirmations, and reassurances that their assumptions are not assumptions, that their values and motivations and goals are noble and worthwhile, shaping them at the level of neurons into communities of differing priors. Most recently in the United States, We've seen this with the impeachment of Donald Trump, the trial of James Comey, opinions on climate change and evolution and the moon landing. And with the coronavirus, we are seeing all manner of different responses to the uncertainty of how we ought to be behaving and governing and planning for the future. But this goes back farther than that. In every election, every war, every crisis and moral panic, same evidence, same information, same situation, many different conclusions, in the most extreme cases, different realities. It's just that social media and other technological innovations have accelerated and exacerbated this. But this is something that brains have done since there have been brains. But now, thanks to the Socks and Crocs experiment, we may now know how all this happens. We may understand it. And not just with explanation or prediction, We can create it at will, at a fundamental level. Pascal and Michael call all this surfpad. Substantial uncertainty, combined with ramified or forked priors or assumptions, yields disagreement. You could also resolve this uncertainty by like getting getting gathering more information. That's and that's true. But that's not practical in most situations because by the time you came up with an accurate model of the world, someone who just acts on their priors, maybe they might have already killed you or took you your stuff, or, or it might be too late, like in this corona crisis, we will know in a year what the right course of action was, but we have to take action now. So so, the, so these priors are shortcuts to to act, because there's a huge action bias, if you want to call it bias. I think it's actually prudent in the real world. Like you're not, in the real world, you're not the philosopher who can ponder everything forever. You have to make actions today, now, you know what I mean? And so there's a huge uh, discrepancy in, in, in that. The danger for me is not so much that we disagree, because we can argue our way out of that. 
is that we don't treat ambiguous situations as ambiguous. And so we don't treat disagreement as worthy of argument. The dress, the shoe, Yanny and Laurel, socks and Crocs, they all show that we can have an opinion about something that doesn't feel like an opinion. It feels like the raw, unfiltered, unassailable truth. On the internet, people can form tribes around that feeling. Flat Earth communities, QAnon, anti-vaxxers, neo-Nazis, liberals, conservatives, and so on. And once you are a member of a tribe, belonging goals will always motivate your reasoning more than accuracy goals will. This is because, as SurfPad shows, we are only consciously aware of the result of these processes, not the processes themselves. Your brain gives you the end result of this processing, and there's about, in the, in the primate brain, 30 processing stuff of visual perception. It doesn't give you, because you do, as far as I know, you, don't, you do not have conscious access to these 30 steps on the result. So that's where the uh, confusion comes in that, oh, people think they see the world as it is because they get the end product. But a substantial portion of the primate cortex up to, it depends which species we're talking about, but up to, I would say, 30% in a human is just doing this subcortical, subconscious, not subcortical, subconscious processing. Some of it is subcortical, but most of it is not. But early individual cortex. And that's basically like a GPU. It's like you don't have, you don't have conscious, conscious access to that. That's why in a moment of uncertainty, looking at something that's ambiguous, it doesn't feel like you're uncertain. It doesn't feel like you're disambiguating. It doesn't feel like your opinion is an opinion. It feels like the raw, unfiltered, unassailable truth. And now, whatever your personal truth may be, you can find people who agree with you on the internet, even if you happen to be wrong, factually, morally, or otherwise. Disagreement over anything now takes on the appearance of what happened in 2015 when we disagreed over the dress. We don't see the people who disagree with us as disambiguating using differing priors. We just see them as wrong or maybe crazy or misinformed or misled. We think if they only knew what we knew, they would change their minds to match ours. But thanks to the work of Pascal and Michael and hundreds of other social scientists, you can see the folly in this idea by just replacing the dress with literally any piece of information that to you, seems to lead to a conclusion that should be obvious to everyone. Well, let me just take one step back to just to emphasize how important this is. Um, in general, we construct reality together socially, if that makes sense. Like, it's co-constructed. So how do I know a table is there and not just me imagining it? Oh, you see it too, and you agree it's there. So social agreement is is incredibly important to calibrate yourself. The reason people rely on social feedback, you know, for everything is because it's usually a rich source of information, right? So if uh, if if we both see it, then it's there, then it's real. You know what I'm saying? Disagreement challenges that. We're like, oh, no, I don't disagree. I don't agree with you. So so that is a little bit awkward. You know, what I'm saying, let's say. Um, to link it to something for perception, let's say you think the car is very far away and I say, no, the car is right here. Well, now what? I mean, we can't both be right, right? We can't, we can't both be wrong, but we can't both be right. So, so, so we have to now adjudicate this somehow. Uh, where, I mean, usually 
if if we trust each other, right? If I trust you that we are more or less on the same page and you have good intentions, then well, then we probably say, oh yeah, but you know, do you see this tree over there? That suggests that you know maybe I'm right and you're wrong, and you just need to look more closely. Maybe you say, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't think of that. So if we if we have goodwill, we can probably resolve this, right? By 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 saying, oh, but why do you think it's closer? Oh, because there's a stone next to it, and that makes it look bigger or something like that. But unfortunately, and this is where we are in the modern world now, honestly, I don't know who I can trust and who I can't trust. I don't really know anybody, neither do you, if that makes sense. Like, you don't know most people to the level that you need to know, that you wouldn't know in a, in a tribal environment. In a, in a tribal environment, in a communal living with 100 people or so, you know everybody. I mean, you see this on social media every day, where people have this bad faith discussion and they argue and they are ending up further, far away from each other than, than before, not not closer. And historically, that leads to violence uh, when, when, when groups disagree. So ultimately, the edu- adjudication of that is basically violence, war. So we're like, well, we'll see who wins. Who wins is right. And that sort of thinking, obviously, extends to politics and to the kind of arguments that we have on the internet. We try to win more than we try to be correct. And that is all a factor of how we are not really in a post-truth world, but it's a post-trust world that's been brought about by moving into polarized, partisan, tribal politics and thinking and epistemology in every domain of our lives, which may or may not just be the result of new technological tools that encourage that. It's probably also why so much conspiratorial thinking is out there right now. So many conspiracy theories are bubbling up and moving into our actual politics. The politics that we usually take seriously are starting to take seriously conspiracy theories that we usually don't. Now, this all sounds like doom and gloom, this post-trust world. But Pascal says that the solution here, which is backed up by other research, backed up by interviews we've had on the show in the past, is that we must meet in ways that allow us to see with our eyeballs that the other person is using different priors and processes so that we can see what seems certain to us seems certain to others in a different way. In other words, we need to meet face-to-face so that we can see that different people live with different problems and goals and motivations and concerns. And most of all, they have had different experiences and continue to have them. And if we had experienced or continue to experience what they have or had, we might agree with them, even if we know for sure they're wrong, factually, morally, or otherwise. This is why we see contentious issues as contentious, because they are ambiguous, and we are disambiguating them unconsciously and not by choice. And if we can see that, we can see that in ourselves and others, it can lead to something he and many of the other academics at NYU are calling cognitive empathy. For Pascal, one avenue toward that empathy, towards seeing people as fellow disambiguators in an uncertain world, is something he calls surf-padification. We need a surf-padified discourse culture where everyone understands, or at least most people, many people understand, oh, this is what's going on. We need to transcend that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I am subject to a surf pad. You're subject to a surf pad. Knowing that, can we go to a meta level where like, oh, what are my priors? What are my assumptions? You know, do we have different priors? What are our goals? Uh, and maybe then come to some kind of understanding where the other person is coming from. Because I do see a lot of, quite frankly, shocking takes 
on social media. Uh, but instead of engaging with them, I don't say anything because I tried to engage and it made the disagreement worse. So I think we need like this culture of surf pad to like a, a new culture of discourse. And that is not as impossible as it might seem. Because new ideas in science have changed our norms, changed our institutions, changed our very conception of ourselves many times in the past. The Copernican revolution, evolution by natural selection, the germ theory of disease, moving the seat of consciousness into the brain, the advent of psychology itself, making us aware of unconscious forces driving our thinking, feeling, and behaving. And maybe, in some future version of ourselves, and probably called something else, the surf padification of discourse in an always-on, always-connected, flattened world where all the information is always available all the time, making everything uncertain and everything ambiguous. We need something like that in a world where the truth exists, but trust is hard to come by. Here's something really nice to leave on. Pascal's next experiment will be trying to see if he can alter people's priors by giving them just a little bit of new experience. He wants to see if people can see the dress and the shoe and the Crocs differently. In other words, he's going to try and change people's minds by exposing them to new things. He hypothesizes it shouldn't take an entire lifetime of new experiences to gain a new perspective. Generally speaking, I would say a lifetime of experience is integrated to get the prior, but we don't know that. We don't know how long that is. So, so I'm actually doing an experiment right now where we give people different experiences of light and see if that shifts their perception of the dress or the Crocs. I bet you right now, which we haven't done yet, I bet you right now that if we could get the people who see this gray Another way of estimating the light instead of the uh, white uh, socks, but something else that makes it unambiguously clear what the light is. They would they would be able to see it as pink too. When Pascal told me that, I told him about how former cult members and members of hate groups and members of anti-scientific communities and so on almost always mention that they left after seeing something salient, something unambiguous. And that thing then allowed them to see everything else in a new way. I, I, th I think the salient experience of your cult members or whoever you talk to, they, they were experiences that made unambiguous and made it clear what the light is. Oh, that's so right? good. <laughs> Thanks. They saw the light. They saw, they saw they, the light. Yeah, this is amazing. Enlightenment. <laughs> yes, we, we could do a lot of this. So it needs to be something that's unambiguous, where you have no rationalization. Now, like, no, I now saw the light. It's it's done. You know, uh, it's always like that. The every person I've talked to who, who's left an organization, it, it almost it it's never been some sort of violation of their contract with that person. It's always been something 
that's more fundamental. Like, no, you can't take that medicine because that won't help your back. Or you can't wear those clothes because uh, those are only allowed for certain kinds of people. Or one of them was, um, they just wanted to date and they weren't allowed to date. It was, it was almost like what we were talking about earlier. Like, it's these more fundamental motivations that aren't allowed they're not allowing them to satisfy certain goals that are more fundamental than belonging to that group. And they start, that is the crack that allows in the light where they're like, Oh, um, why wouldn't you do that? That, that it seems unreasonable to me. And that starts to see, they start to see things differently after that. So to, to answer your previous question. So that's the strategy then you have to open a crack to let in light. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find past episodes. You can also find past episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. Also coming soon, Amazon Music and Amazon stuff. You'll find it there. And you can find it at Omni, where I usually put everything first and it all flows from there. You can follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. You can follow the show at Not Smart Blog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this one person operation, help make it better, help hire staff, help make cool things, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This is Banjo Apocalypse. And if you really, really, really want to support the show, tell everyone you know about it. Share it on social media. Let them know. All right. See you in two weeks. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.